Have you experienced a simulation? Any kind. I'll start by saving you having to look up a definition. The current first line of its page on Wikipedia describes it as an imitative representation of a process or system that could exist in the real world. That could mean so many things. In 2012, a researcher by the name of Harry Owen published a paper wherein they write, an off-sited belief that until recently simulators used in education of healthcare professionals were simple models is wrong. Hundreds of years ago, and in one instance, thousands of years ago, intricate models were used to help teach anatomy and physiology and training in obstetrics and many surgical disciplines. Simulators were used to learn skills before performing them on patients and in high-stakes assessment. In a less high-stakes environment, here's the one I thought of right away when I asked myself the question. Maybe you recognize this intro. Think 80s computer games. For most who don't know, that was the intro to the version of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego from the 80s that I played over and over. It's also my favorite example to characterize the moment where software-driven simulations became the more popular vehicle for immersing a person in a role, where they're expected to behave, use new skills, and solve problems. What's really interesting about my guest in this episode is that if there were a pioneer of our time who brings these two worlds together, game design principles and the power of simulation in education, it might be Dave McCool. Okay, yeah, I'm Dave McCool. I'm the president and CEO of Muzzy Lane Software. Uh, we are a company that provides tools and content to support skills-based uh, assessment and credentialing. David McCool is president and CEO of Muzzy Lane, a company that was recently awarded one EdTech's 2022 Gold Learning Impact Award. Since founding the company, Dave's goal has been to build technology that empowers authors to create compelling online experiences and help students practice skills with guidance and feedback. Dave was previously involved in the founding of two successful startups and a game title you may know, Making History. He graduated from MIT. So if like me, you've ever wondered when we'll begin to develop better ways of putting simulation into the hands of educators, you'll learn a lot from what Muzzy Lane is up to. If you picture the simplicity and agency of MIT's Scratch for Kids and layer in a spectrum of possibilities for simulating skill environments for all kinds of learners, a world of interesting possibility follows. I'll tell you one environment where simulation would go a long way, learning about work. In the US, only about 2% of high school students receive an internship, which can be a huge game changer for young people exposing them to skills, aspirations, and adult connections they wouldn't have otherwise. Before we get started with our episode, let me tell you about a project I've had the good fortune of working on alongside a talented product team at NAF in the last year or two. NoPro is a new digital platform built by NAF, the leading career readiness nonprofit, and full disclosure, I'm proud to call my employer when I'm not talking into microphones. NoPro helps high school students solve real-world problems build in-demand skills for resumes and college applications, and earn points and awards. Each month, they offer a new industry challenge worth $10,000 to winners. I said $10,000. 
to winners and can take place at school, after school, or even from home. And here's my favorite part. It's totally free. Thanks to project sponsors like Lenovo and Amex. Check it out at knopro.org. That's nopro.org for more info. Enjoy the episode. This is Dave McCool, and you're listening to No Such Thing Podcast. I want to start with the TRS-80 Model <laughs> 1. Where were you and, and what was important about discovering the TRS-80 Model 1? And, and what was it like for folks who have no idea what that is? Yeah, so I was living in Green Bay, Wisconsin, 12 years old. Uh, when that was announced. And I just thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard of. And uh, I immediately wanted one. I think it was $599. And I had to convince my parents to front the money. I had a paper route that I paid it off with. But it was just amazing. It had a it had a uh, 4K of RAM. It had a cassette recorder that you loaded programs from. Yeah. And you could edit them. You could just go. It was all in basic. So you could just go in and just change them. And it was, that was to me, that was amazing. It sort of set me on everything I did in my life after that. Yeah. Uh, it's so fun to know where people's initial spark came from. How, how come, why would you say it was easy to convince your parents? Um, were they technical people? Nope. Nope. My dad worked in HR and, um, so they were not technical at all, but I think they just saw, I think they saw the passion and they were just willing to support that, which is great. So, um, I, alluded to this earlier, but I don't want you to hate me for saying this. I was super <laughs> excited to chat with you because of your long view on this space. You know, a lot of folks who conduct research and speculate about this world we're going to talk about today, you know, learning in, in digital environments, don't realize that there are pioneers in the space who've been at it and are smart about the moment we're in, different from those who haven't experienced those cycles. So, this is a long way of me asking you to start way earlier than you might have intended in this interview. And tell me a little bit about the journey for you between MIT and the field of education or, or innovating specifically in education. Yeah, so we so I graduated from MIT in 1987, um, spent a lot of time in the networking and telco startup space, um, had a lot of fun, had a lot of success and, you know, got to 2000, around 2000 and, and wanted to sort of deciding what to do next. And I'd always been um, intrigued by games, video games, and we looked at, a couple of us looked at the space and said, hey, you know, education starting to go digital. You know, it was still pretty early days. It was still CD-ROMs in the back of the textbook for the most part, but yeah. websites were coming, and we could see that coming. We said, you know, when education goes online, this should not just be PDFs and videos. It, there should be, there, um, software can do amazing things, right? Going all the way back to the beginning of my journey, software can do amazing things, and it, we felt like it could do amazing things for education. So we wanted to be a part of that. So we started Mozilla in 2002 and just dove right in. That seems like um, it seems like it would take an incredible amount of courage. Was <laughs> was the courage related to what you had experienced in telco, or was it um, youth? Was it like eh, we can do anything? Well, I think it, it always helps to not know what you don't know as far as, you know, having the courage. Um, I do think we felt like we felt like we were really good at software and at product development. So we felt like that would be an asset for us. I think we underestimated how much we needed to learn about the education market and how how different the education market is from most um, markets. Yeah. So so let's go with that. How, well, what did you learn about how education, how different education is as a market? Uh, it. it 
it moves more slowly. It evolves more slowly. Um, you know, you've got you know, the thing. One of the things we learned early on is that time is this precious and non-recoverable commodity in education. You know, you you have a semester. You're only like in fifth grade once. You're only a freshman in, in college once, and you can't really experiment too much with those kids because then they're gone. And yeah. sure, you know, you'll catch the next wave, but then you know, you know, Mark, you just lost your freshman year of college. You didn't learn what you're supposed to learn. So right. at that time being precious and, and in the, in the moment was a really important thing. And I think that that touched a lot of what we did is from the complexity, from the, how much time things would take to, to use or to play. Um, and then how reliable things had to be. You, you couldn't just take these experimental leaps. Right. So your first, um, it seems like you got, I, I don't want to say you got lucky, but I know a lot of, uh, certainly in the game space, a lot of startups that start with a title that doesn't do all that well. But Making History was the first that I know you spent a lot of time working on. I know that was a, among other things, but um, it was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And I just wanted to know more about how that came about. Yeah, we had, you know, when we started, we, you know, the mission was always sort of funny coming full circle. You know, the mission was always to try to, we were software people. So we wanted to build platforms. We wanted to build tools. We wanted to enable content development. Yeah. You know, the games industry had this whole modding element to it, which we were always um, really intrigued by. So making history came with modding tools. So people could could take our version of it and use it, or they could make their own versions if they wanted to. And I think that was you know, we that gave us an opportunity to interact directly with educators in high school and colleges, learn about the environment, learn about how curriculum is delivered, how our scope and sequence is put together, how our standards mapped against. So we did a lot of that work, which was really valuable for us. And we learned a lot, you know, good and bad. You know, we learned it was too big, right? For a lot of people, it was just it, the, the time and complexity commitment was just too high of a bar for them to get over. And so a lot of that has fed into what we've done today. You know, the micro learning simulation work comes out of all those early learnings. Um, skill build, which is sort of like our come full circle back to content, um, still builds on those lessons. And the interesting thing about making history for me is that it's it's still alive today. I mean, mm. it, it had a it had a life in education and in the commercial space. And it is still on Steam and it has had many iterations. Um, its designer broke off from Muzzy Lane and started his own company to keep that ball rolling. And so it's, it's, that's gratifying for me to see that our, our sort of first set of things is still alive and, and, and well. So, Yeah, it's interesting what you said about modding because yeah. that's actually a – maybe coincidentally is where we kind of started this conversation um, with your first experience with – you know, the machine you're, you convinced your folks to buy, right? You, what you loved about it was being able to mod using basic, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. do you think that that's, is, is that, is there, is there more to that than, uh, like, are you conscious of that in your work now that, that you're still trying to replicate an experience that was really important to you in that way? Do you think it's an important learning experience for, for everybody? It's funny. I, I I don't know that I've ever directly connected them, uh, but that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about. But I think that the unlocking people's creativity has always been at the heart of what we've been gunning for and aiming for. Is you know we don't have all the answers, and and you know we want to make sure that you can have that experience. You can create. You can iterate. You can test things and and make them better. Um, and I think that a lot of that kind of tied into kind of the first phase of the company, which wrapped up with this Gates Foundation research report 
research project that we did, which took a year, um, and they wanted to study how game-based learning solutions could impact outcomes for online higher ed. Mm. And so, you know, we did focus groups, we did interviews, we did surveys, we met with administrators, faculty, students, and one of the key things that came out of that, there were a bunch of key learnings, but one of them was we want to control our own content. We want to be able to create and and modify content. We don't want to just go to a vendor and say, hey, make make me a simulation or make me a game mm. and just kind of stuck with whatever they give us. And and when you say they were they were saying that, was it the the institution, the professor? Who was the yeah. user in that case? Yeah. Both the administration and the faculty. Um, and online higher ed is interesting because in some places the the curriculum decisions are in one or the other. They're not always in the same same side. Yeah. So you guys kind of started as a game shop. You're now working in a very different space. But how I wondered how different is it, right? Like um, how well do you think the competencies that you built as a as a, I don't know whether to call it a game studio, how well does that translate to what you're doing now? Which <clears throat> I think that from um, some people's, per- like a, a lay perspective, folks would see it ed tech in, I'm using air quotes, as being a totally different space than um, than a game studio. So it, it, can you connect that for people who don't necessarily know how those competencies uh, translate from one to the other? Yeah, I think they've converged a lot over the years. I think that um, the, the the design principles underlying a good game and the design principles underlying a good active learning experience are very, very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to understand what experience are you trying to create for the user? Um, how do you teach them how to use that experience? How do you sort of onboard them into the, into the product? Um, and then, you know, in a good game, you're learning how to overcome challenges to win the game in a good active learning experience, you're learning skills that you need to show mastery to complete the activity. And I think those are very similar for us. Mm. So I want to come back to the tool in a second, but um, what you're saying makes a ton of sense to me because I have some professional history in the sort of the space of serious games and I also had, maybe you and I share some experience in that as a kid, one of my favorite early computer experiences was with what now might be called educational games, but then were just games. So things like Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, which was like one of my all-time favorite. Um, And then there were text-based games we were playing in, in earlier versions of things. And so... To me, what you're saying makes total sense um, because I think in some ways it felt so obvious then that this is where things were headed. So right. so a question that I wanted to ask you is, um, and yet we're talking about decades, right? So I wondered when you were when you were building making history and at, at that stage and you were thinking like, here's what's right around the corner. In hindsight, what things did you think were right around the corner that have actually taken way longer for people to like pick up and and use in practical ways? And do you feel like there are a lot of those things that you're still chipping away at? I think I think the vision early on was that you know we used to have the saying that you know our games will be as engaging as the best video game and an integral part of the curriculum. And I think that was a 
perhaps a little, little bit too bold of a vision. Um, I think engaging as the best video game, it's a challenge to fit that into the way education is working. Um, you know, if you look at true, you know, successful commercial market games that are, are having success in education, you might look at something like Roblox or Minecraft. And I think those are those are great examples um, where there's a lot of user generated content. There's a lot of creativity from the students themselves that go into making those successful. Um, but you don't see the other big, big budget, um, big titles in there. You know, SimCity, for example, they tried to adapt it an education version. It's just it's just really hard to implement. It's hard to use um, with the rest of the things you're doing as educators. So I think that we over the years realized the the. the the effective solutions, and you're always looking for sort of effectiveness and outcomes. The effective solutions are smaller, they're more targeted, they're mm. mapped to what you're trying to teach or what you're trying to assess, because games and sims are good at doing both. Um, and they have to be a part of what's happening in the classroom. And I think the challenge with the big the big games is that they're it's hard. You have to really redesign your whole class around them. And one of the things we heard loud and clear in the Gates research was, don't disrupt my class. Mm. Don't make me change everything to bring in this innovation, which I, I agree will make things better. Make it fit with what I already do. Hmm. I think about, um, I think about models that have been tried over time <clears throat> where they actually do try to totally reinvent the classroom in a, in a sort of like game based way, you know, for one, they haven't really been scalable and two, they have had kind of, it really takes a, um, one uh, person who's so passionate about building a classroom or a school around that idea and and funneling people to it that um, that it's been hard. So so uh, what I hear you saying, and I, tell me if I'm hearing you right, is that if you're not trying to change everything about particularly public K twelve classrooms, but K twelve classrooms generally, or K-18, I should say, um, and you're trying to work with a system that exists, then the it sounds like what you've learned over time from making history to now is that small solutions um, that access some of the, like, principles that make it playable and make it fun and engaging, but also these sort of micro assessments and things that are happening in the context of play, it, the more you can kind of isolate those and offer them as small solutions, the better. Did I, did I summarize well? Yeah, I think you summarized very well. And I think, you know, look, look at skill build that we're, we're rolling out right now. It's, it's small role play simulations in, you know, mostly work-based challenges that you're trying to solve. So, you know, you're, you're playing a role, you're the produce manager, the boss comes to you and says, Hey, they ran this user promotion in Denver and the sales person wants us to run it too, you know, should we do this or not? And mm. so you have to go talk to, you know, you talk to the salesperson, you look at the financials, you do some research and you have to kind of figure out how to solve that problem. And what we find, and, you know, you use fun and engagement, which are always sort of interesting words for, for game-based learning people. Um, we find that the users in that are very engaged. Mm. Like they, what we hear from them is I felt like I was that person. I felt like I had that problem to solve. And that's really what you look for. Interesting. Um, and again, you can do that in a, you know, in a 20 minute experience and then that can, you can have more than one of those and they can sort of scaffold into a, a larger, say, semester long experience or increasingly string together in a micro credential form where, 
you know, they may not be part of a, a semester long course. They may just, that just may be the course you're going to take. And it may be five hours or seven hours and you're going to mm. get a credential that you're going to then go use in your life. Can we talk about the, the micro piece for a second? So, uh, the term has come up a bunch as I'm, I'm checking out skill build, uh, again, air quotes, micro learning simulations. I feel like sometimes people lose con lose track of like, what is micro and what is macro anymore? <laughs> Um, yeah. So, so in your mind, what is a, a micro learning simulation? You know, for us, it's a five to 20 minute experience um, that puts you in a role. It's an active learning experience. It, it, it gives you a, a goal and a challenge uh, that you're attempting to, to meet and to solve. And, you know, what's nice about it, having them be relatively small is they can map directly to skills or outcomes that you care about and you want and you're looking to measure. Um, and then you can kind of string them together in different ways to, to create more complex experiences. So can we um, describe some of your favorite use cases, like examples that maybe you're testing or maybe that uh, users have have piloted already that turned out to be exciting? Yeah, a lot of great ones. I was thinking about that question before the call. So Education Design Lab, who's our partner on the skill build um, content, um, built a, a critical thinking assessment called Save the Museum. Um, takes actually more like a half an hour and it's your, there's a museum that's struggling, you're brought in as a consultant, they're gonna be putting on a new exhibit and you need to figure out how to help them market that exhibit. Mm -hmm. So you need stakeholders, you need to look at data, you need to look at the community demographics. Um, and that was great, it's great. You play it and you're like, wow, okay, this is really cool. Like like the way it gets you thinking about stuff because there's sort of a pedagogy behind doing doing these things in a way that really gets at higher order thinking and, and problem solving and um, that one does that really well. Um, Western Governors University is another one of our customers. They just released three new simulations in Teachers College for handling difficult conversations. Hmm. So one with students, one with parents, one with administrators. And they're really good. They really get you in that situation. And it's practice. It's, you know, a lot of game-based learning is about practice and practicing these situations so that when you go into them, you're you're better. You know, you yeah. start off at a level of, of ability. Um, and then McGraw Hill, who's our our largest partner. Um, they have a great line of K five math activities, which are really cool. And that was a challenging place because you you know some of those some of them can't read. So thinking about having them play a game or a simulation has other considerations. Um, and then their higher ed group, which which is deployed across a lot of the curriculum, have things like you know there's a food truck simulation uh, that teaches the four P's of marketing. So where you have to run a food truck mm. and successful. And so those are some of the examples that we really like. Interesting. What are the four P's of marketing? You don't it's have to, you know. <laughs> product, place, and positioning, I believe. <laughs> nice. So you learned something. So I learned so something, yeah. Tell me what it feels like to build your own simulation. What would people expect to experience if they were to pick this up and try to do something with it? It's a bit like being a game designer. You know, you have to have an idea. You have to have a scenario in mind. You have to have, you know, what, like, what's my challenge? Okay, so my 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 side project is... I want to build a simulation of the Munich conference. Hmm. So for me, it's like, okay, you know, who are the, who are the roles, you know, what, what, the, what role will the player play? What other roles will be in this, in this simulation? Um, you know, what's the data, you know, what, what do you, what do you need to track? What actions do I have? Like, what do I get to do? Right. You always ask yourself, what, what things are the player going to get to do? And then how do I structure all that? So you end up with like these, you know, whiteboards full of like boxes and lines and, you know, so you're, you're basically game designing out a, a game experience and then you go into the tool, which is a no code authoring tool and you just start building it. Are there 
so let's say I'm a women's studies professor at a two-year college, and I really want to create a new simulation. Do I need any background in game design, or is that all scaffolded? We do a lot of training and support for our users as, as they onboard. Um, and we do, the game does help you with things like, you know, setting up learning outcomes and feedback for students and, you know, all the different interaction types that you can use. But, but yeah, you'd want at least a little bit of sort of scenario design. And I, and I think most educators have this, most educators do some of this already, whether it's online or offline, where they, they create situations where their, where their students can try things out and practice things and experience each other. So I think we tend to see a fair amount of that. Like most of our authors are, our educators, you know, most you know, our partners who build for us, most of their authors are professors, instructors, textbook authors, you know, the, the, the same sort of group that, you know, creates and teaches with traditional materials. So I want to, you mentioned roles, data, and things you can do. Um, can we talk a little bit about the data part of that and how the data and the credentialing connects to one another. And I'm curious particularly how some of the early users of the product are using, are, are making the experiential data of the simulation flow into the system that they're already working in. In other words, how does the credential translate to value on the part of the higher ed institution or the museum, um, you know, the foundation? How does that work? Yeah, so normally people who are, and just to be, to be fair, not all of our partners use us to issue credentials. Some mm -hmm. of them use us as part of instruction in a larger course or assessment in a larger course that... Yep. that maybe just part of a bachelor's program. But I think when credentials are involved, people are generally using a competency-based model. So they're saying, okay, the things I'm going to build are going to measure you. And, and if you achieve competency, it's going to give you this credential. Otherwise, it's not. And the in that case, the data that I mentioned before is usually internal to the simulation itself. The data is helping drive whether you've achieved competency or not. So in the food truck example, you might be judged by revenue um, or, or return on investment or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really the it's really the learning objectives and the skills map that that you can also set up that drives that that credentialing at the, at the back end. And we're really excited about that. That's what Skillbuild is all about is is showing showing mastery of these important skills, developing those skills if you need some help and some practice, giving you a credential, and then you know EDL and we are both out in the market um, building credibility and building value for those credentials. Hmm. So in the case of the food truck. Um, they're using the, like your system is basically issuing the credential that then is being used on the back end for the, the stakeholder, right? There's no need for them to be flowing a user's data from the simulation into their gradebook. No, no. So yeah, that's a good point. So we, uh, in, in there are two examples. So when a partner say integrating us using learning tools, interoperability standard, we're delivering the experience, we're grading you and, and getting all that data put together, and then we shoot it back up to the partner and they decide what they want to do. They may issue a credential, they may give you a grade, they may unlock other experiences more in the learning management system side of things. Um, in situations where we're 
issuing the credential, for example, skill build, we're sending you through a series of these simulations and building up um, a mastery map for you. And as you, when you, when that completes, we just automatically through an API to the credential issuer just issue that credential directly to you. Neat. Okay. It works. Got it. One of the things I wanted to ask you is about the idea of innovation windows. Like um, some some will know, and if if you don't, I'll put it. I'll put a link in the show notes to. Um, Overton's window, right? Which is like this idea from another field, right? But uh, an idea that in time, there is a window of opportunity where two things need to come together. One is sort of the innovation, but the other side is practicality of like how that innovation fits into the world. Um, And so I I was hoping that you could... um, share a little bit about what the window looks like right now for you, what you think is most uh, not only ripe on the innovation side, but also that there's a readiness on the system or the, the institution side to sort of adopt and take on. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think there's two, I'd answer that in two ways. Um, on just the general sort of evolution of the education space and how education operates, obviously the pandemic was a huge shock. You know, pre-pandemic, we saw this very slow sort of movement towards digital learning solutions, more complex um, curriculum content, more complex assessments, for example. I know mm-hmm. you you had ETS on in a previous show talking about the future of assessment. Yeah. Um, the pandemic just forced everyone online for a period of time. And I think that did two things. I think it, it exposed that that could actually logistically work, be mm-hmm. done. Um, and two, that it wasn't a great experience for the most part. <laughs> so yeah. I think that we're still seeing the impact of that. Like lots more people got exposed to it. Lots more people had to use it. And then the deficiencies of a lot of the current um, stuff out there were also made clear. And so, you know, our usage went up quite a bit. I'm sure everybody else's did too. Um, but I think also people saw, okay, you know, this can work. We do want it to be part of things, maybe not all of things, but part of things, but we want it to be a quality experience. You know, if there's no instructor there, if you're online doing stuff, we want that to be a quality experience, not just you watching a video or reading a PDF. So I think that's one trend. And I think that's just sort of juice this whole, you know, normally slow evolution to be much quicker. And then the other piece is this move towards skills-based learning, training, and hiring. You know, this idea that, you know, there are 40.4 million Americans who have some college, no degree, probably practically speaking, won't ever finish a degree. There are 75 million, what they call stars, skilled through alternate routes. So all these people have skill and have some learning. They have no credential. And traditionally, there's really only been one credential of any real value in the U.S. job market, and that's a degree. And so there's tons of activity and tons of funding going into um, building value in alternate they're called alternate credentials now. Eventually, we'll just be credentials um, yeah. at a more granular level that are more accessible to more people. It's really very much an equity thing. You know, Education Design Lab is a nonprofit with an equity focus. And so lots of work going on to just get those credentials available, consumed, and and accepted by employers. So it, that brings me to uh, the last question that I wanted to ask you, which is really about mission. And obviously, Muzzy Lane is very much a a business and you're balancing um, revenue and, and 
keeping the lights on and the kind of the things that you need to as a as a business that's developing software and solutions. Um, at the same time, it feels like your work since making history has also been about mission to a degree. And so I wondered if you had to align your work now to the window that we're in, what's your sort of most most recent version of the vision we talked about with making history you said as engaging as the best video game and and an integral part of the curriculum so if you had to update to now and what what the mission of this work is how would you describe it i think what we're trying to do now is is provide authentic learning experiences and assessments to the broadest possible population sort of a not as pithy as what we used to say, but I, I think the, the what I mean by that is that the shift to skills-based hiring, learning and hiring is really meaningful. And getting a credential that means that you know that, that is valued by an employer that when your resume comes in, that applicant tracking system is going to go, oh, Mark has the critical thinking credential and the interpersonal skills credential. I need those. Let's send him through to the human so that he'll get an interview. Yeah. Um, Assessing those credential, assessing those skills, and even developing those skills is often done by with a human, human doing that, and that's expensive, and that throws up another barrier to these the forty point four million and, and the seventy five million stars because that's expensive mm-hmm. and don't necessarily have access to that. And so, for us, I think what we can do is through simulated learning environments, we can give authentic practice and authentic assessment at a much lower price point, so that many, many more people have access to it. And that they can get that credential that comes out of that, and get to the, to the um, you know sort of the career and life advancement that they're looking for. So that's kind of the mission. I think it's a, a beautiful mission, and it it begs one a question for me that I th- I think is maybe a part of your the value proposition that may not even be articulated yet. But as I think a lot about um, about some of the drawbacks of things like um, AI and solutions that education is being, you know, prompted to consider. Um, part of the challenge with like, and maybe it's a bridge too far, but but I think part of the problem with the current models for AI is that there's really not a lot of agency in... Uh, in what's being fed back to most users, not all users, but most users. So you have to rely a lot on whatever humans are feeding that system with content to make sure what's coming out is free of bias or as um, sort of thoughtful as possible, whatever it is. With Skill Build, one of the things that appeals to me is that you're bringing institutions back into an agentic role and uh, one where they are responsible for feeding simulations with the the best kind of experience that's going to yield the kind of outcomes that actually are valuable in in a contemporary way and and maybe they need to build those skills of creating simulations like that because they may have to do that every 2 years like things are changing so fast so I don't know. Do you guys think about that at all? Is is there? Do you see that as as a value proposition for skill build? Well articulated, yeah. And I and I don't think we think explicitly about it very often, but that's very very true. And I think you know you said something interesting there. You know, you said free of bias, and one of the subcompetencies in the critical thinking course taxonomy from EDL is role of bias because 
no such thing as free of bias. Everything right. has bias. Right. And so what that part of the hurt their taxonomy attempts to do is sort of make you aware of what kinds of biases there are, make aware of your own biases, help you understand that bias isn't by itself necessarily bad. You just need to understand what it is and where it's coming from. And, you know, you I'm sure you hear the, the AI discussions all the time about, you know, what should they be like? Who should be feeding them? Whose point of view should they be representing? And yeah. I don't think there's the answer to that. Yeah. Um, Dave, this has been so much fun. I uh, am really grateful to you for spending some time on the show. And I'm really excited about where the work at Muzzy Lane is right now. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Looking at my notes, I, I think we hit all the points on my notes. I mean, I think, you know, we just, I'm excited. I feel like the arc has been, you know, we made content originally. We learned a lot. We shifted to the tools mode and we and we help people make content using kind of our knowledge of best practices over time. Um, and now we're coming back and saying, okay, we feel like we've reached the point where we've got, you know, we've got a pedagogical approach and we've got a content area that we're excited about. So we're building the content. So it's, I feel like we've come full circle. Yeah. Dave, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks, you too. Dave, it was so good to meet you. Thank you for spending time. I really appreciate it. I think it came out well. Good, good. I'm glad. I and hope. There, I'm never, because I'm an engineer. I'm not really a salesperson. So it's like, <laughs> you never know how it's going to go. I think it was great. And I think it was, um, I think it was a great way to get to, I hope, I hope that, you know, it can go, it can go different ways. Like sometimes people really like me alluding to earlier work. And then sometimes people are like, I'm just trying to sell the new thing. I don't want to talk about the old thing. Um, yeah, yeah, you definitely made the PR people nervous with the, uh, with the focus on the early work. So, well, I, I hope that it's, um, my interest, you know, and part of the reason that I, I don't do a lot of responding to the, to the publicity folks is that they always want to make a commercial, and I get that. Um, yeah. what, what I'm more interested in doing is illuminating the practice of innovators. And so, to me, it's really important that we hear about <clears throat> the whole arc of uh, what you've contributed. And so, I hope, even if it didn't satisfy all of, all of their boxes, I hope that it was... Um, helpful for you and, and just a, a better, a better, a more well-rounded story of how you've contributed through Muzzy Lane. So, um, that was my goal. I think you did well. It was, it was fun. It was fun to, you know, you poked things I haven't thought about in a long time, made connections I not made. Um, I think it's definitely one my, my friends and family will enjoy watching. And, and I think my feeling is, you know, again, maybe I need to be more salesy, but I think if we get our message out there and our awareness out there and people know what we're doing, I think that will, they'll come. Great. Is there, I meant, I was going to ask you this this week and then decided that I wasn't going to actually have time to, uh, <clears throat> to do it. But if there is a way to tinker with, um, with the product, I would love to. And I could think of seven different, uh, folks who have been on the show looking to do things who would, uh, you know, would I, where I could make a referral and, and let folks know that, um, uh, that they should dig in. So, if I can be a useful broker for you, I hope you'll you'll let me know, and I would love to sample and try to put something together and just see how the experience is and see if I can I can be a good referral for you. Yeah, I think that'd be great. We yeah we do um uh yes so we can we can create create an account for you. You'll get some demo activities that you can just play and then open the editor and see what they look like and how they were made and make your own. It's it yeah it's fun. It's awesome. fun. Like I said, I my Munich crisis one for a while, but maybe someday I'll finish. Great. <laughs> 
Dave, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, I wish you a, a restful weekend. Thanks, you too. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.